Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for me and Kim. I got to give a hat tip to the producers for that music. <laughs> so appropriate leading into this conversation. We're going to be talking now about the $2 trillion infrastructure plan announced yesterday by President Joe Biden. Here he is uh, talking a little bit about that proposal. It's a vision not seen through the eyes of Wall Street or Washington, but through the eyes of hardworking people, like the people I grew up with, people like Mike and his union family, union workers in this carpenter's training center, people like the folks I grew up with in Scranton and Claymont, Delaware, people who get up every day, work hard, raise their family, pay their taxes, serve their country and volunteer for their communities and just looking for a little bit of breathing room, just a little bit of light. If it's enacted, it'll mean massive infusions of federal money for traditional infrastructure projects, everything from filling potholes to updating airports and bridges, as well as billions for public transportation, electric vehicles, even affordable housing, all of it with an emphasis on reducing carbon emissions to help confront climate change. And California, of course, as the largest state in the nation, is going to receive the largest share of that federal money. And that is our topic this hour. We'll be talking about it. And joining us first is Ethan Elk. Kind. He is director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley's School of Law. And welcome uh, to, to you, sir, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, so much in this plan to talk about. What jumps out at you, especially from the climate perspective? Well, the thing about this plan is that it really is a climate plan and that when the old, in the old days when we talked about climate policy, it was often about mandates and standards and maybe carbon taxes. But what Biden has done here is shift the debate from climate policy being all about requirements on industry and, and threats of potentially reducing jobs to instead creating an industrial policy that will actually address climate change. Because when we think about what needs to be done to fight climate change, it's really about building out a lot of infrastructure. That means a lot of renewable energy on the grid and a modernized electricity grid. That means zero emission transportation, battery electric vehicles, and all the charging infrastructure that comes with it. And it also means changing how we move around. So instead of having an automobile oriented kind of infrastructure, Structure. It's about switching that those dollars for transportation that used to go to building new highways to now investing it in public transit, passenger rail like Amtrak, bus only lanes, pedestrian and bicycling infrastructure. So it's a, it's a real shift in how we're thinking and acting on climate change in this country. And, and there's a lot of money behind it in this proposal. So if this actually is able to get through Congress and in any sort of similar shape to how Biden has proposed it, it's going to be a major uh, planned and a major accomplishment for this country in terms of actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions through this infrastructure build out. And of course, uh, Biden and others uh, during the campaign spoke a lot about climate change. And I think many people expected there would be sort of a standalone climate bill. Uh, but I know you, you told our producer yesterday that this is the climate plan for Biden. Uh, what do you mean by that? 
Well, as I was saying, it, it, to fight climate change, it's about building things now. It's about an industrial policy. And so all of these investments in here will reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So when we think about decarbonizing our electricity grid, for example, that's going to require that we build a lot of new transmission lines to access areas of the country where there's a lot of renewable resources. So think about the, the Great Plains and Wyoming, the Dakotas. They have tremendous wind resources, potentially enough wind to power most of the United States. We also have a lot of offshore wind potential. And of course, places with a lot of sunshine in Utah and Arizona and Nevada. And we just need to build the transmission lines to access those resources. And this plan has not only dollars to help incentivize the transmission build out, but it actually empowers the Department of Energy to expedite the building of those transmission lines. So that's just one example of, uh, of how industrial policy will mean reducing emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions that, that cause climate change. And then similarly on the transportation side, the switch to battery electric vehicles will require a whole lot of new charging stations. This is one of the top concerns people have when they're making the choice whether or not to buy a battery electric vehicle versus a traditional internal combustion engine vehicle is where am I going to charge? And so now this plan would put about $174 billion towards electric vehicle charging infrastructure all around the country. And not only that, it also has rebates on uh, at point of sale for people buying American-made electric vehicles, which will also address one of the barriers to buying these cars, which is that they tend to have higher upfront costs, even though they help save consumers money over time with reduced fuel costs and reduced maintenance. So uh, on the electricity and transmission side alone, this is a, a major climate plan that Biden is pushing forward. And if you think about that paradigm shift, I mean, right now, if you have a traditional vehicle, you stop at a gas station, which, of course, is owned by oil companies. Here, we're talking about the government building and paying for these charging stations. Talk about the, the significance of that as a shift. Well, it, it is a big shift, and I think you know there's different ways that the money could go. So the money may not, for example, just mean a, a government-operated electric vehicle charging station. What it could go towards is instead helping utilities build out the grid to support these charging stations. You know, particularly as we think about switching to battery electric trucks and buses, these big uh, battery packs that are needed for these for these large uh, forms of transportation mobility, we need high-powered charging stations. Or think about uh, drivers. If you're going on a big road trip and you've, you've only got a few minutes, you want to stop in a, in a rural interstate and charge quickly like we do now with gas stations, you're going to need a lot of power very quickly. And so that's going to require a, a, a build out of the electricity grid to support that kind of network. So the dollars can go to things like that. Not so much that we now have you know Uncle Sam actually in the charging business, but it's all about that supporting infrastructure and not just on interstates, things like that, but in uh, in cities. I mean, a, a lot of residents in, in cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, if they if they live in an apartment building and they don't have a dedicated place to park and therefore to plug the car in, they're going to be much less likely to want to buy the vehicle. But if there are charging stations all around the city, at the grocery store where they shop or at their workplaces where, where they commute to, you know, once COVID is over and people are back to commuting regularly, that's going to really help uh, encourage people to want to buy an electric vehicle if they know the charging is available. We're talking with Ethan Elkind. He's director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at UC Berkeley's School of Law. He's also, by the way, host of the podcast Climate Break. We'll be joined by uh, a reporter from Vox in just a few minutes. But if you have questions about Biden's infrastructure plan, uh, yeah, let us know what's on your wish list for upgrades or changes that you'd like to see right here in California. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or if you prefer, email 
It's forum at kqed.org. In terms of uh, the overall picture here, I mean, of course, we don't know yet if this can make it through the Senate, mostly, especially the Senate. uh, But this is not nibbling around the edges, right? I mean, this is really going big. It's a bold plan. I mean, $2 trillion. Some would say they would like to see more dollars put uh, towards this plan, but I think $2 trillion is a very sizable investment. And then there are other aspects that are non-monetary that are very significant. So for example, somewhat buried in this infrastructure plan is a requirement that we get to 100% carbon-free electricity by 2035. It's a clean energy standard. So that's very significant now to put the United States on a glide path towards ending fossil fuel use to generate electricity. So that's a non monetary example that could have really significant impact on the climate. There's also some very targeted grant programs. I mean, this plan is is well beyond energy. It gets down to housing as well. So there are grant programs to encourage local governments to end exclusionary single-family zoning that prevents affordable housing from being built, that prevents apartments from being built in their communities when they have abundant access to transit. So some of these high-income suburbs that have been resistant to housing. So that's a a major change, potentially. There's dollars in here to plug up old abandoned and orphaned oil wells, uh, dollars to support nature-based solutions for carbon sequestration like parks, forest lands, wetlands, uh, student programs to get a, a domestic kind of AmeriCorps or, or, uh, or Peace Corps to do some climate projects here in the U.S. So the money is very targeted. It could potentially leverage additional investments. And so there's a lot in here. And I think this is, this is really a plan that should give a lot of folks optimism about the United States' ability to actually address climate change and, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions at the scale that we need to really avert the worst impacts of climate change. There is, as I said, a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars for uh, transportation, public transportation, uh, as well as uh, the charging stations and those sorts of things. I'm wondering, I don't know how carefully or how deeply you've dug into the details, uh, but is there money for high-speed rail in California? That has been extremely uh, controversial and bogged down, uh, lack of money. There is, it can't be done without federal money. Is, Is any of that in here? Well, it's a great question. And I think for high-speed rail, this was kind of the the last best hope to save the system. You know, we spent a lot of money, unfortunately wasted a lot of money in the Central Valley, far from the urban centers of LA and the San Francisco Bay Area. And we don't have a lot to show for it. They needed a new cash infusion. The interesting thing about this plan is that it doesn't actually mention high-speed rail anywhere. Unlike the Obama stimulus of 2009, which specifically set aside money for high-speed rail, this plan does not do that. So what that means is that high-speed rail is going to have to compete with other projects if it wants to get some of these dollars, because there's about 80 billion for rail that high-speed rail could compete for. But that's going to be tough because we've got a lot of other projects around the state we want to see funded. So like a second Transbay tube in the San Francisco Bay Area, down in Los Angeles, Metrolink has a lot of plans for expansion. Uh, San Diego boosters want to improve the rail Amtrak connection between San Diego and Los Angeles and electrify that from diesel trains. So there are a lot of projects that California high-speed rail is going to have to compete with if it wants to see any of this money. And I think at best, it's only going to be in the single digit billions and high speed rail probably needs at this point tens of billions to be able to get over the Tehachapi Mountains and into Los Angeles and really become a functional statewide system. And what's that process going to be like? Who's going to be who are the deciders? Well, it's going to probably be, be a competitive grant program uh, where they're going to have to compete with other with these other projects. So uh, we'll see what happens with high speed rail. I, I do think it's positive for high speed rail. This finally puts some real federal dollars on the table. It could <laughs> enable them to maybe complete the segment from the Central Valley from Bakersfield all the way to the San Francisco Bay Area, but it's not going to be the full build-out that was originally promised to voters in 2008 when they passed that bond measure. 
And in terms of, uh, I, I realize you're a, you're a climate guy, not a politics guy, and we'll be asking our next guest in just a moment about the politics of this, but does it seem to you uh, that there have been lessons learned uh, that have been baked into this proposal? Lessons, you mentioned, for example, the Obama plan uh, specifically mentioned things, and in this case, it's much more, in some ways, general. Is that a, is that a learning from, uh, from mistakes of past? Well, you know, it, it's hard to call what happened in 09 exactly a mistake because we wouldn't be in this position today to see an infrastructure plan like this without the investments that were made in 2009. I mean, those investments in 2009 spurred tremendous innovation and, and price decreases in the core clean technologies that we need to fight climate change. So that means wind energy, solar photo, photo, uh, photovoltaic panels, and batteries, lithium-ion batteries. Those prices have come down between 75 and 90% since that 2009 stimulus, and in large part because of that stimulus. So because of the work that was done in 09, we now have a chance to pivot from just tax credits and R&D and things like that to now actually let's build this stuff out. It's at almost price parity, uh, cost parity to fossil fuel competitors, if not beyond in some cases. So let's just build this out and let's let the federal government enable that to happen at a rapid pace. So that's where we are today. And I think in the terms of the politics, you know, Obama was very famous for trying to be this transformational bipartisan figure. And his theory was that we could overcome partisan divides if he if he appeared reasonable and popular. Uh, and we and Democrats really learned the lessons that Republicans weren't going to play ball. They, to the price of trying to get those few extra Republican votes for Obama his policies really neutered a lot of what he was trying to do. And I think Biden and other Democrats have learned the lessons that just get popular stuff done as quickly as you can. Don't wait for Republican politicians to come on board. Republican voters are by and large already in support of these plans. So just move forward as best you can and try to hold that 50 vote caucus together in the United States Senate. We're talking, of course, about President Biden's infrastructure plan. Let us know what's on your wish list for upgrades or changes you'd like to see here in California. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you like, it's email forum at kqed.org. Joining us now is Ella Nilsson. She is the White House reporter focusing on domestic policy for Vox. Uh, Ella, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. So what's uh, what are you hearing in Washington and sort of from uh, Congress, members of Congress? Uh, I know that some people uh, who were in support of the Green New Deal, AOC and others thought it didn't go big enough. I sometimes wonder if that's not just sort of to uh, to make it seem more mainstream to have people on the left criticize it. But, you know, what what are you hearing? What are the early reports? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, with with anything in a bill this big, uh, I, Biden is kind of getting criticism from, from all sides. So yeah, there are progressive Democrats um, like AOC who say the bill is not big enough um, and are advocating for something along the lines of $10 trillion over a decade. Um, then there are Republicans, of course, um, who say that they want a bill that kind of deals more in the more traditional sense of, of just roads and bridges um, with infrastructure structure and, and not packing in, you know, other priorities that the Biden administration hasn't included. And of course, the thing that Republicans don't like most of all is the uh, 
tax raise, uh, the corporate tax raise that the Biden administration proposed to to pay for this infrastructure plan. Um, and then you also, I mean, I would say moderate Democrats are, are somewhere in the middle. And, and honestly, you know, moderate Democrats, including um, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, have said that they want a big infrastructure bill and they're fine with corporate uh, tax raises to pay for it. Um, but there are already you're already seeing members, um, moderate Democrats in the House uh, say that they won't vote for tax changes or this bill um, unless there are specific provisions that they want. So um, we're going to see a lot of competition and jockeying from members to get different priorities in and, and people kind of giving ultimatums for their votes. And is, is it correct that this will, they're thinking they can get this through that same reconciliation, budget reconciliation process they used for the uh, $1.9 uh, trillion COVID uh, re- relief plan so that they you know don't have to worry about a filibuster? Everyone that I have talked to sort of seems to think that this is the way that this will ultimately go and that it will kind of kind of follow the the path that it did last time, where the White House will certainly and, you know, will most immediately will be in the stage where they're fielding calls and fielding, you know, change suggestions from Republicans and Democrats alike. That will probably take a while. Um, but, yeah, I, I think ultimately uh, the White House sort of sees, you know, they, they know that they're running against the clock um, ahead of the 2020 two midterms in case Democrats lose one chamber of Congress. Um, so they and they have one more chance, at, at least one more chance um, to to pass another budget reconciliation bill with all Democratic votes. And so, yeah, I think that right now they're sort of taking a similar stance that they did during the COVID bill, arguing that this bill is broadly or this um, infrastructure plan, I should say, is broadly popular with the public. And I think that you're going to sort of hear that argument um, sort of maybe stretching the definition of what is bipartisan in, in Washington and and at least sort of saying it's bipartisan um, among voters in the country. Well, and I think uh, as we did with COVID, you might see some Republican mayors and governors who say, yeah, sure, we'd love to get some of this money to rebuild our roads and bridges and airports and ports. Uh, and, and so it's bipartisan potentially in that sense, too. Yeah, and, and we'll have to sort of see what, what Republican mayors um, and, and governors say. But certainly, you know, I think a lot of people um, in a lot of different parties would like if the federal government is handing out, uh, you know, a bunch of grants to to upgrade their roads and their bridges um, to, to get broadband in rural areas and, and urban areas that have been um, hard to reach. Um, there's a provision in there that would replace 100 percent of the lead pipes in America's water infrastructure. So there's a lot of stuff in there that I think, uh, you know, members of, of both parties would would want to get done. And so unlike, say, Obamacare, the ACA, which cost Democrats the, uh, you know, the majority in Congress, they're thinking this could actually help them in the 2022 elections. Yeah, I, I think that that is the hope and that the, the hope is sort of like like the uh, covid relief plan, which which delivered, you know, tangible changes that people could see very quickly. I mean, and certainly this this infrastructure plan is not going to be as immediate as, say, a $1,400 stimulus check in your bank account. Um, but yeah, I think that the the White House, you know, thinks that if, if they can sort of deliver things and especially, you know, do things that are, are tangible that people can see, like um, yeah. improvements to roads and bridges, uh, that, that that will be popular. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll continue our conversation 
conversation with Ellen Nilsson of Vox and Ethan Elkind from the Climate Program at UC Berkeley's Law School. If you'd like to join us, give us a ring at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786 or Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. And we continue our conversation now with Ethan Elkind of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley's Law School, and Ella Nilsson from Vox. And we'd love to hear from you. Again, the number is 866-733-6786. And let's go to Ari. Welcome. Hi. Good morning, guys. Thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, go right ahead. I just had a question uh, about the new EV infrastructure plan that your previous guest mentioned. I was just wondering how it's going to affect uh, the charging companies like Blink Charging, ChargePoint, Switchback. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Yeah, good question. Thanks. Ethan, do you want to take a stab at that? Sure, happy to. Well, Ari, it's a, it's a good question. I think the idea is not that the government would supplant those private companies that uh, have their charging networks. I think the idea is to support them in a sense behind the scenes. I mean, that's what's happened in California, where electric utilities will invest in electricity infrastructure to support charging stations. But, you know, there are no PG&E or SoCal Edison charging stations. Those are all kind of behind the scenes wiring upgrades that enable private companies then to come in and operate and install their their charging network. So it won't supplant it. It'll just support it and make it much more feasible for those private companies to really expand out their charging network all across the country. So this plan isn't going to make enemies of any companies that are you know trying to expand uh, charging stations and really make electric vehicles more uh, feasible for people. No, I, th- I think it's going to be very welcome news for the charging industry. This is going to be a, a lot of tailwinds for them. And, and they frankly need the support because the business case for charging isn't quite there. This is that sort of chicken and egg problem is that, you, you know, you, you don't build charging stations unless you know the electric vehicle drivers are there. But the electric vehicle drivers may not want to purchase the electric vehicles unless they know the charging stations are available. So this helps solve that chicken and egg problem, just gets the charging network widely deployed. All right. Ari, thanks for that. Let's go now to Mohan in Mount. Mountain View, you're next. Mohan, are you there? Yes. Hi. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Can you hear me? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay, great. Uh, my comment is um, if the Biden administration is really serious about taking on climate change, they need to take on the animal agriculture industry. Um, this remains a huge blind spot in the infrastructure plan and uh, just in discussions about climate change in general. Um, raising of animals for food is a significant source of emissions, water quality issues, air quality issues, antibiotic resistance, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I would really love to see the government remove subsidies for uh, products like meat and dairy, especially red meat, and um, and subsidize uh, fruits and vegetables and plant-based proteins. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's part of the infrastructure plan, but uh, I'm wondering, Ethan, I mean, certainly there's been a lot of discussion about how food production contributes to climate change. I mean, that would be, I would think, the Ag Department, uh, as well as perhaps some other committees in Congress. But uh, 
there's nothing in this bill, am I correct? Of course, it's so many pages long, it may be in there somewhere, but I don't think it is. No, I, I don't believe there's anything in there around animal agriculture specifically. I, I will agree that it is a major source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's not just uh, the methane emissions from livestock, but it's also a lot of natural gas that goes into producing fertilizer to grow a lot of monocrops that are then ultimately fed to animals to produce uh, for meat consumption. So there's no question this is this is a big sector to tackle. Uh, but I will point out that there is something in the bill that could help uh, address this, which is that there's a lot of money, bill, billions, in fact, about $27 billion dedicated towards innovative climate research. And a, a lot of the solutions to our agriculture problem, I mean, in addition to just shifting where the subsidies go, uh, a lot of it will involve some innovation. So, uh, for example, if it's, it's research into plant-based meat, if it's research into what we call dairy digesters to capture methane from livestock and then use it to, to produce energy on site uh, or, or just keep it from going into the atmosphere, that that will really benefit from research dollars at the federal level, from grants, et cetera. But I don't think this bill will be the final word on the agricultural sector. I think we're seeing a lot of interest in climate smart agriculture, where we can sequester carbon into soils and farmers can play a really critical role in, in serving as a carbon sink. And I think the, the dollars in here will help go to help finance some of those methods to, as grants and for research and innovation so that agriculture can be a part of the climate solution instead of part of the climate problem. Yeah. And of course, with uh, Democrats having no votes to spare in the Senate and not that many in the House. I'm sure they don't want to lose any of those votes from some of the more agricultural states uh, because that would uh, doom the whole thing. But Ella, can you? we've talked a lot about the climate aspects of this bill, but there are a lot of other things in there, uh, including more improving access to broadband, internet, uh, affordable housing, even racial equity as it relates to some of these issues. What uh, Can you speak to those parts of this uh, proposal? Sure. Yeah. And there, there is a lot in here that I would say kind of goes beyond the, you know, the traditional definition of, of roads and bridges. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a whole big section that really sort of deals with infrastructure around, I think, more of people's, people's homes. Um, so there's obviously uh, high-speed broadband, which is a big thing. And, and honestly, I mean, is, is a pretty bipartisan priority on Capitol Hill because there are plenty of Republican members with constituents, especially in rural areas. Um, there are Democratic members with constituents in rural and urban areas um, that, that are dealing with A, lack of high-speed broadband, and B, costly high-speed broadband. Um, and Biden, uh, in his speech introducing this yesterday, kind of talked about, you know, how the, the New Deal electrified the country, um, brought electricity to, to many places that didn't have it, and that he is sort of viewing high-speed speed broadband as kind of the, the next sort of electrification of the country. Um, and then there's, uh, there's $213 billion for affordable and sustainable housing, and that is both creating new housing units and also retrofitting existing ones um, and, and sort of trying to both put people back to work and increase the affordable housing supply in the country. Um, and then there's also uh, something that, that I think is really interesting that, that made it into this plan, which is $400 billion for the caretaking economy for, for home and community-based care for elderly people and disabled people. Um, and I think that this really speaks to some of the racial equity um, things that, that the Biden administration is trying to do, because a, a lot of workers in the caretaking economy are, are black and brown and, and, and usually women um, who are taking care of people in their homes. Um, and, and a lot of times these are low wage jobs and not unionized jobs. 
Um, and I spoke to the, the head of the SEIU um, union, which represents a lot of nurses and, and um, home health care workers. And, and the, the woman was saying that, that this is a really important part of the piece. It, you know, this is not, again, not what we think of when we think of traditional roads and bridges infrastructure, but it's really sort of, um, you know, trying to raise wages and, you know, basically thinking of taking care of America's aging population as, as a form of infrastructure. So again, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in, in Congress, but um, there, there's a really a lot in this plan. Yeah. And uh, one of our listeners, Dana asks, will the government raise taxes to pay for this? And uh, uh, I think we know the answer is yes, Ella. How can that also be handled in the uh, infrastructure? I mean, on the reconciliation process and will there be votes for that? Again, no votes to spare. Yes, I mean, so reconciliation um, can can include changes to, to taxes. So, um, yeah, the the plan that is that the tax plan that was released accompanying this infrastructure plan is specifically raising the corporate tax rate to 28%, and also a number of provisions kind of closing um, some existing loopholes that allow corporations to, to stash their money in, in offshore banks or, or pay taxes in other countries that have lower tax rates. And I mean, I think that there are the Biden administration, I think, is going to make a real political argument around this because um, I think that, you know, the idea of raising taxes on large corporations that aren't paying their fair share is is potentially a politically popular one, especially kind of arguing to middle class voters, as, as Biden did yesterday, saying, you know, look, I want to deliver on things for you and I want to make sure that uh, large corporations are paying the same taxes that that you're paying and are paying their fair share. Um, but again, this is something that Republicans really oppose. Um, and I don't think that there will be any bipartisan consensus on on that particular part of the plan. One of our listener tweets, is there any money for climate mitigation measures such as wildfire prevention in California? Ethan? Well, I didn't see anything there specific to wildfire, so uh, but it could be in there. I'm, I'm, I just am not sure. But you know, in general, I think there's a lot of flexibility around uh, some of the dollars here. First of all, a lot of the details can be worked out. But just for example, looking at the 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 category of nature-based solutions to climate change. Uh, so I was mentioning earlier about you know, preserving carbon sinks and forests and wetlands, et cetera. A lot of that money can go towards wildfire prevention, or if not prevention, at least reducing the significance of wildfires. And this is kind of a win-win for the climate and for public safety, uh, because if we can thin out forests and reduce some of the fuel load, if we can also thin out some of the uh, wildland areas that border our uh, suburban communities, uh, particularly here in California, then that can also help reduce carbon emissions, not only when the fires burn, but also to help address uh, sequestration in, in the soils uh, by t- using some of the biomass to help uh, bury that essentially in the soil. So I think the nature-based solutions that could be funded uh, by this plan could go towards wildfire resilience. And I think states like California are going to be very eager to take that money and use it for that purpose because it is a climate win and also a wildfire win at the same time. Back to the phones now, Maya in Mendocino. Welcome. Hi. I'm really happy to be here. Speaking of wildfire situation, my wish is that there is money to help California regrow its native drought-tolerant plant species to have not only a suburban initiative but also along the highways so that we can start regrowing the plants that are far more accustomed to this kind of natural cycle of burning and allowing for some climate mitigation through the drought tolerance. 
All right, Maya, thanks very much for that comment. I would think uh, perhaps, Ethan, that that would be something that Caltrans might be thinking about, right? Uh, I mean, that's I don't, I don't know that that's something the federal government would do, at least not in this bill, but who knows? It's such an expansive proposal. Well, it really would depend on who would own the uh, the land. So if we're talking about areas just adjacent to the highways, then Caltrans, and if it's a state highway, would own it. If some of it may be federal land, some of it may be local, locally owned. Uh, but I think you know, bottom line is with, with this package and also the, the COVID relief package that you were discussing earlier, the $1.9 trillion for COVID relief, a lot of that money went to state and local governments, which is enabling them to, to apply for grants and to dedicate resources to doing some of this treatment on lands that, uh, that uh, your caller was describing, because it it is very needed, not only to ensure we have more native plants, but also as the climate's changing, that means the range of, of plants are going are to be changing as well. So for an area that just burned, do we try to regrow plants that are for today's climate or do we plant plants that are better suited for what we're likely to see in the next 25, 30 years uh, with, a, with a warming climate here? So that is an open question. But bottom line is with this infrastructure plan and then the COVID relief bill, there's resources to do exactly that. And a, obviously a huge amount of interest in doing so, given the severity of the wildfires that we've seen in California over the last few years in particular. Yeah. And I know that uh, just earlier this week, uh, the California delegation to the House and Senate asked the uh, Ag Secretary and the Interior Department to make their firefighting capacity year round rather than seasonal. So obviously, uh, the delegation from California is thinking about these things, whether it's part of uh, this infrastructure package or not. I'm Scott Schaefer, and you're listening to Forum. Here's a comment from John who writes, is this plan really enough? During the Trump administration, there was talk of a $3 trillion infrastructure bill, and there was discussion that it really should have been $6 trillion. Is Biden's $2 trillion enough? And Ella, what happened to Trump's infrastructure bill? I mean, there was a lot of talk, but there was no action. And I, I just don't get that because it seems like that could have been a real bipartisan win. What are your thoughts about why that just never happened? Oh yeah, I remember. I remember uh, during during the Trump administration when um, there was actually there was a, a meeting with uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, um, then Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is now the Majority Leader, and Trump. And and actually, I mean, it was I, I remember because you know coming into office. Um, I mean, first of all, Trump had two years of unified Republican control in in the House and Senate. There had been talk back then of doing an infrastructure plan with, you know, just a Republican um, controlled government. Um, but but basically, Republicans couldn't agree among among themselves. Um, there wasn't really a fully fleshed out plan. So that never happened. Um, and then when Democrats took control of the House in 2018, um, you know, there there was there were a few meetings. Trump even agreed to a two trillion dollar uh, infrastructure plan, basically agreeing with Democrats on the need to spend that much on infrastructure. And for like I think a couple of days, people, um, you know, Democrats on Capitol Hill were optimistic that maybe something could get done. Um, but ultimately, the administration just didn't really have a plan. And um, this all also coincided with the start of um, some of the investigations that the Democrats were doing into Trump's finances, which he did not like at all. Um, and so usually when they would have meetings on infrastructure, it would get derailed by Trump, you know, upset about 
about investigations and then impeachment happened. And then that was basically, that was it for was any that. sort of hope of infrastructure. Yeah. 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 Well, there's also money in this bill. So many different things, affordable housing, uh, there's money to replace lead pipes and water systems like the ones that uh, poison so many people in Flint, Michigan, also the Central Valley uh, has some very poor water quality in many places. Um, and, and I'm just wondering, uh, Ethan, it, it, it seems like this really is, uh, in addition to addressing the traditional, the way we traditionally think about infrastructure, really talking about human infrastructure in a way, and also industrial competitiveness, uh, thinking about how are we going to compete with China in 10, 20 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a big part of this plan as well. And, he, and President Biden issued an executive order as well to look at the domestic supply chain for things like uh, electric vehicle battery manufacturing. Because right now, China, Korea, Japan, they really dominate lithium-ion battery production. And that's that's a reliability risk. It's a potentially a national security risk as we transition to battery electric vehicles. So this plan does have a lot of resources to try to build up more of a domestic supply chain for batteries, other clean energy resources. But Scott, to your point about uh, water infrastructure and, and improving the pipes and all that. In a lot of ways, that's, that's really a racial justice issue in this country because it's, it's low-income communities of color that often have some of the worst infrastructure and these basic public health and safety needs, uh, with well, namely water. And uh, a big part of this plan, I think, is trying to address the, the racial injustices that we've uh, experienced and continue to experience in this country. I mean, we think about the four priorities that Joe Biden outlined when he was running for president. It was COVID, it was the economy, it was racial justice, and it was climate change. And in a way, this kind of addresses all of that because uh, 40% of the funds for clean energy, for example, have to go to disadvantaged communities in this plan. You're seeing the, the lead pipe water infrastructure piece. You're obviously seeing all the climate impacts, the COVID impacts, and the uh, desire to get jobs, uh, good green jobs, union jobs uh, to build out this infrastructure. So he's really kind of rolling this package all into one in terms of tackling all four of those crises that he identified when he was running for president. Getting to the end of the hour, but let me ask you, Ella, in your article in in Vox, you say, and I'm I'm quoting here, Biden's jobs plan also reveals an administration that is fundamentally rethinking the role of government in America. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think that this was a switch that happened um, even during the the campaign, and especially when we started to see the emergence of COVID nineteen um, and what it did to you know jobs in the country, what it did to the economy, and and especially um, you know the exacerbations of of existing longtime inequities, especially um, for for Black and Brown people in this country, and I mean. Biden ran as a moderate initially, you know, he was running against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. He was not seen as the most progressive guy. Um, but but in the middle of the campaign, um, you know, when he was the, the nominee for president, I think that his his thinking and his advisors thinking really shifted on just how big they needed to go. Um, yeah. And remember, you know, he was Obama's vice president. He <laughs> oversaw the implementation of the Recovery Act back in 2009. And I mean, his his he and his advisors have all been very vocal that they just think that that did not go far enough. And yeah, so clearly. they are really trying to 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 address some um, big things here, which means yep. passing big bills. Exactly. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much. Ella Nilsson from Vox, White House, White House reporter, and also Ethan Elkind, director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment at UC Berkeley's Law School. Thank you both. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank Forum, you. you bet. Forum is produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan. Susan Britton is a lead producer. Our interim editor, senior editor, is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimia Akbari. And our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, Chief Content Officer Holly Kernan. I am Scott Schaefer, here today for Mina Kim. Back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.